On Forgotten Gems, we look at some film festival favorites that initially got a lot of attention, but have since either fallen into obscurity or fallen out of favor. On this episode, we're looking at the Sundance Grand Jury Prize-winning Heat and Sunlight from 1987, so let's check it out. Welcome to Forgotten Gems, a chance to rediscover festival favorites. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as always, is Hands of Stone, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? You know, Doug, <laughs> uh-huh. I've, been, I've been better. I've been better. I've had a lot of uh, minor uh, just disasters the last uh, mm-hmm. 24 hours, but I'm, I'm ready to dig in with this Forgotten Gem and really, <laughs> really come to its defense and talk about how amazing it is. Look, uh, not to give anything away on this episode, but <laughs> the movie that we're about to talk about, Heat and Sunlight, it's it's a it's a difficult one for I think the both of us, Liam, and it's going to be a little frustrating to talk about. Uh, so you know, I I'm it it's I find it very unfortunate that you've been having a hard time recently. Uh, the other unfortunate thing, Liam, is at the time that this episode is released, the U.S. Uh, election will I guess presumably be over. So uh, who knows what sort of national hangover will be occurring at that point? Yeah, I mean, literally, someone might be listening to this on their way to, like, the battlefront. I don't know. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if, if things go my way, I'll be playing it over the loudspeakers at my uh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle-style, like, uh, hangout, you know, like where the fucking yes. <laughs> foot used to hang out in that first movie. That's what I'll, I'll be running one of those in Chicago. That's, that's my future. Once there's a part, apart. It, that part in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with the hangout with like the uh, half pipe and all that in the video games. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a part in that where um, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but one of the foot soldiers, like a kid runs into him and he, he like t- tells the kid, he goes, go, he goes, go play. And as when I was a kid, my brothers and I would say that to each other constantly. We would just say, go play like i don't know just one of those lines from a movie that uh, has stuck with me forever just like the lines in heat and sunlight from the year 1987 which we'll be <laughs> quoting for the rest of our days i'm sure Leah. yeah it's already written on my heart in uh in banana <laughs> that'll make more sense once we talk about this movie that almost nobody has ever heard of or will want to hear about uh, Liam, one of the things about heat and sunlight which is actually very interesting is that it's a uh, mostly improvised movie, if not completely in terms of the dialogue. This is an improvised movie. Now, uh, that that can go right or wrong, depending on the sort of movie it is. Uh, I think a lot of the improvisation that mainstream audiences are most familiar with come from comedies. What do you feel about in regards to movies using improv, Liam? I'm more comfortable with movies that use improv to form a script. You know, rather than go into a scene. Um, Doug, have you ever seen an improvised musical act? So there's a podcast that is an improvised musical that I do listen to Mm semi-regularly. I think it's called Off Book. And and that those skills that go into that are it's like magic to me. It is unbelievable. When I was first going to shows when I was a kid, there were a couple of bands who were touted as amazing because they were improvised. And um in my experience, sometimes we give a lot of respect to something because we know it's hard, even if the results are not good. I mean, that's true. Absolutely. And uh, I think the the weird alchemy 
that creates something good out of improvisation is rare. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's more common in comedy, which is interesting because I think oftentimes comedy can be more difficult than drama. Um, but there's just but I think like, I think there's a lot more training specifically right. to that skill set. Right. right, right. I think I think improvisation in drama is difficult, um, and it requires a lot of character work. Like you need to know who this person is in a way uh, that is not easy, and and so I I kind of respect it. But on the other hand, I'm also like, well, as much as I respect it, I don't enjoy it as much as I would like. And the few rare examples, oftentimes what I find out is like, oh, the improvisation all happened in rehearsal. And by the time they got on set, everyone knew what they were doing. You know what I mean? And that's different. That's a different thing. I also think that there are people who think that they have these improvisational skills that when put on the spot and asked to do something uh, raw and interesting and real, that they just can't do it. They just can't get to that place. You know, Del Close, the person who kind of uh, spearheaded the improvisational rules and movement in the U.S., he used to have people do non-comedic scenes because he knew how important it was to have that skill when they're doing comedy, right? Um, And I think that that's something that it can easily just turn into word salad, uh, or or one person trying to dominate the scene and make themselves look interesting at the expense of making it seem real. Yeah, and I just find the whole uh, the whole logic and art of dramaturgy where you are taking something and trying to make it sound natural, but also imbue it with a certain amount of weight. Mm-hmm. You know, like in in uh, unless you do it, you're not always thinking about this. But unless you tell stories. You're not thinking about the fact that part of a story always implies editing, you know, unless you're writing uh, Ulysses, you are editing. That's what you're actually doing when you tell a story, because you're saying these are the things that are important and I'm highlighting these things because they're important. And that feeling gets heightened when you're doing drama on stage and you're trying to figure out how to take this dialogue that's supposed to be rational dialogue that humans would say to each other and fill it with all the weight of telling this story at a level beyond just the narrative that like I'm not just ordering a sandwich but in ordering a sandwich I'm confronting my dead father or whatever and uh, that shit's hard and often it falls into the realm of you are overcooking this dialogue. You are yeah. baking it beyond recognition. So the idea that in improvisation in a drama, you'd be able to just get there, it doesn't always happen. And sometimes you really, as in uh, you know, some recent memory of things we've recently watched, <laughs> you have people yelling incoherent things at each other that they in the moment are probably thinking, this is magic. And then watching it back, you're like, what is that? What was that supposed to in your head? What did you think was happening in that scene? Because I'm not seeing it. <laughs> We're going to talk about a scene like that in particular in uh, just a little bit. Liam, I do want to ask before we get into that, um, are there any improvisational works that you particularly like? You know, I, I'm sure there are that I would need some time to really think about. Um obviously with comedy that it's more likely but again like for example um what exactly is christopher guest's methodology you know what i mean yeah. like i mean have you have you ever read about his methodology no i haven't I've so he basically the creates these packages of information and outlines for right, his right. cast so he has the story beats where they have to get to because he's got to be able to prepare ahead of time but then they come to the set and they have to have worked out the details of their character and all the dialogue themselves 
Right. Okay. So that still involves a lot of preparation. You know, there that's there's a sense in which that's a different kind of improv than a lot of improv people are doing. You know what I mean? Um, it's a and, similar form that they use for Curb Your Enthusiasm, the TV series. Right. All, another great example. But these are all comedy, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know I've watched improvised dramatic films, and I certainly have watched, unfortunately, a number of dramatized or uh, improvised dramatic plays. But I can't remember any that I was like, that's magical, and I'm remembering it's magical because of the improv. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't have any good examples. Do you have any good examples of things that stuck out to you that you're like, this is good, and it's also partly good because it's improvised? I mean, I do think there are improvised elements in a lot of movies, oh, of course. right? As yeah. opposed to it being the whole thing. And I do think of like Mumblecore as having a lot of those improvised elements because it means that the dialogue comes off as a lot more natural, which is the thing that people both like and dislike about I mean, uh, a I, lot of Mumblecore movies. I will defend Joe Swanberg. I know he's like the, the – the... I mean, Drinking Buddies is the one that I was thinking of, certainly. I love. I I actually like a lot of his. I like Drinking Buddies. I like the uh, whatever the Christmas one is. I forget what that one's called. Um, I even like. Uh, oh man, I'd have to go back. I sorry, everyone. My memory is shot. But I've probably <laughs> seen. I mean, he has a huge output. So some of the very early like digital video stuff I haven't watched, but I've probably seen like six Joe Swanberg movies, and I've enjoyed them all. Um, even the horror movie Silver Bullet, I, I thought was pretty good. So sure. Um. Yeah. And in, in fact, whatever the exaggeration is of what he does, you know, the 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 worst case scenario of what a Joe Swanberg movie is, I've never seen it. You know, and right. I've seen, like I said, six different Joe Swanberg movies. Everything I've seen was good. I thought the show he did easy was very good. Um. But then again, and this is the thing with improvisation, right? I am, uh, reticent to put too much weight on it because I think. I'm not sure exactly what that means. So I don't know how much of what I'm watching is magic. You know right. what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. uh, and as you pointed out, I think a lot of great movies have improvisation. That's part of the point. You get actors together and something happens. There's just a something that happens with people in a space. It's it's kind of like how, this is a weird example, but um, I was recently on a friend's podcast talking about Videodrome. And they were pointing out that you know, well, the movie might feel haphazard because there wasn't a finished script. That That's day. right. I was actually, I just saw a documentary about that very subject. Yeah. But I, I was like, well, that's a weird assumption. And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know how many movies have finished scripts. Like, I don't know mm. how many directors really do know exactly what they're going to do when they get on set. And I don't know how many of them know and then realize on set, well, fuck it. None of that's going to work. I got to figure this out some other way. So, like, I don't think as much as someone might feel that Videodrome is utterly chaotic uh i think it works and i think that that the magic part of the magic of it working is cronenberg bringing his skill to something that he also has a looseness where he's figuring out what he's feeling on set and i think that that, that's that's good that that example is particularly weird because they didn't have an ending for videodrome right and if you think of a movie as something that culminates and is building towards an ending and videodrome's ending is amazing like they're coming up with that as as they're running out of time because they need to have everything filmed by Christmas Day, and they're like running out trying to to you know conceptualize and film this ending that's going to be 
the thing that people are going to walk out remembering when they watch the movie and they manage to come up with something brilliant, but maybe they don't. Right. And maybe that's like you said, maybe there's lots of movies like that. Um, but, <laughs> but we also think of movies that have very stylized dialogue, you know, and have it in contracts that people cannot change a word of that dialogue. And, you know, hearing that you might think, well, that seems really rigid and it seems like it kind of defeats the, the purpose of, bringing together all these great actors. But, you know, people like the Coen brothers do that. They don't like people changing their dialogue at all. And it seems to work for them. Oh, totally. I, I and, and that's part of my feeling, too, is that I don't, I don't feel like I can invest that any one of these methods is better. I, I, and this is sort of my th- issue with people who make a big deal out of improvisation as an act in and of itself, because uh, these are products. There's a final product to yeah. which to, I mean, someone might have soaked every strip of cloth that they put on their, uh, whatever decoupage or whatever, or you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever piece of art, mixed media they're doing, they might have soaked it in their own sweat or the river, uh, uh, Jordan or or you know whatever work someone put in, and that all might be really great, but if the final product is dumb, then I don't care. Uh, and, and then that's not to say that process doesn't matter. Uh, and I think process is actually very important in other things, you know, in community building, in um, a, a lot of like group work uh, and, and movement work process matters. But for me, when it comes to art that has a product, the process is important. But if their final product just simply isn't compelling, the process doesn't overwhelm that. It doesn't make it different. You know, it, it, the product is what it is. Well, thankfully, that's not an issue with heat and sunlight from the year 1987, oh, Liam. thank God. Because it is compelling. It must be. It won the Grand Jury Prize uh, at the Sundance Film Festival, the 1988 edition of the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, heat and Sunlight won uh, the Grand Jury Prize Dramatic. So, uh, and, and then later went on to be nominated, actually, weirdly later, in 1989, for uh, Best Picture at the Independent Spirit Awards. So I would say it's pedigree. You you can't really argue against it. That's fair. That's fair. I, I have no argument. I have nothing to say. Well, you'll have a lot to say, Liam, I think. Once we come back from our first break, we'll talk about in detail Rob Nilsson's Heat and Sunlight right after this. Take this. I don't want this. <laughs> Fucking take this, will you? Take it. Oh. Okay, now go. You won't take the bananas, so go. Okay, you won't take the banana, then He's get the fuck me. out. He won't take it, then he can split. I don't want him to leave. Okay, all right. All right, so. Mel? It's going to make a lot of noise. It's going to make a lot of noise, God damn it! Ah! It's a real crush. Fucking thing didn't even. <laughs> stop. Don't, stop. I don't want to touch stop. you. I don't want to touch stop. you. No. Well, then don't touch don't me. Just touch stop you. and sit down. Just, just don't. don't just go sit down. I'll sit down. I'll sit down if you'll sit down, okay? Over 16 hours in February 1987, a man confronts jealousy and rage as a love affair falters. Photojournalist Mel Hurley returns home to San Francisco on the eve of his birthday expecting his lover, Carmen, to meet him at the airport and tell him if she will be exclusively his. She's not there. She wants more time. Almost 20 years ago, he'd photographed Civil War in Biafra, wanted to tell a story that would save people. He now equates that war with his personal struggle. Can his photographs save this relationship? He goes to Carmen to talk to her. First he acts the fool, then they seem to connect. But can he control his jealousy and not force things with her? It's Heat and Sunlight from the year 1987, directed and written by Rob Nilsson, uh, who is an independent director. He actually kind of 
of of uh, started this style of improvisational filmmaking uh, that was very unique in independent filmmaking in the 1980s. It kind of defined this era of independent filmmaking that would uh, later actually uh, be shifted over by Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, a, a kind of ironically a movie that it was competing with at the Independent Spirit Awards in 1989. Stars Rob Nielsen himself as Mel Hurley, this photographer, uh, I guess previously wartime photographer, who, yes, is now struggling with relationship issues. We spend a lot of our time with uh, Rob and his friend and, I guess, uh, workmate Mitch and them kind of conversing and working through their feelings. Carmen is this woman that he wants to own to some extent. Uh, I have a lot of conflicting feelings about this movie, Liam, as I'm sure we're going to get into. This character of Mel Hurley, this photographer, I'm not 100% sure if we're supposed to come out of this movie thinking that he is a absolute piece of shit, or if we're supposed to be kind of slowly come over to his side. Um, we uh, we talked recently on an episode of uh, of one of our podcasts about a movie that had people on the margins of the art community. Well, this is a movie about people who are so in depth, uh, in sorry, so entrenched in the art community that it feels like they can only communicate through these artistic expressions, and it means that. You have a lot of very odd moments uh, in this moment involving, in, in, sorry, in this movie involving fruit or dancing that might be a little bit hard to parse for people outside of those communities. Liam, what did you think of 1987's Heat and Sunlight? I have trouble discussing the film, Doug, because um, there's an aspect to it that's hard for me to get past. So this character has spent time um, basically as a, as a as a documenter of tragedy, um, right? But the film is pretty unclear that he's done anything in the 17 years, <laughs> anything, literally a single thing they didn't bother including in the script since this thing happened to him, which was understandably traumatic. And now we're met with this character who doesn't seem to have any meaningful work going on and whose only art were shown other than his photographs, which, by the way, uh, his photographs of this tragedy in Africa, uh, border on exploitative. Like, they're really just like, to what extent is he uh, really documenting this thing? And to what extent is it getting to the point where, um, you know, it's, well, so part of my response to his photographs is the fact that now, as he's faced with his next great challenge in life, apparently, which is the fact that a younger woman who he apparently treated poorly for a long time has not responded yet to his desire for them to be like an exclusive couple. That well, that, I mean, and in fact, it's it's not even suggested; it's said outright that it was his idea that they would not be exclusive to each right, other. Right. Then he goes on a, on a on a work trip, and he misses her so much while he's gone that when he comes back, he demands that she choose him or her new lover. Right, um, and. Uh, and that is apparently the same as a genocidal event that he witnessed in Africa that affected him so deeply that for weeks he was wandering around with no film in his camera taking yes. pictures of nothing. Those two things are the same. And the film doesn't let you just hear about how they're the same. It, through the power of montage and editing, keeps telling you that these are the same things in his life, these two big sort of monumental events. Uh, and it's 
so distractingly awful and it takes all of these pictures that he's taken and puts them in the most stark white savior light that maybe in 1970 you're getting the book and about this place and you're thinking like okay you know he's just trying to document this tragedy that by the time we're presented this idea in the film in comparison to like his only other work we see, which is nude pictures of his girlfriend, there's really a feeling of like, oh, both of these things are about you. The, the, whether it's the pictures we keep seeing of these poor, starving black children or naked lady, uh, those are both about you. Those aren't pictures of the thing. They're pictures of you and what you want us to think about you. Uh, and, in, and in both, it's almost like He's a kind of martyr in in the one. He's a martyr in the sense of like he's the lone white man who's going to help save this country uh, with his art. And in the other, he's the martyr to his feelings and the fact that she doesn't love him the way that he now has suddenly decided he loves her. (laughs) And smushing these two things together makes it really difficult for me to objectively think about the art of the rest of the film. Um, now part of that is a testimony to the fact that a lot of that didn't stick out enough to distract me from this really bad decision, but some of that is probably because the decision just rubbed me in such a poor way. I do. It's hard to respond to what you just said simply because a, I agree with almost all of it, but B because the way that it's presented in the movie, it's constantly being played off. Like, those two aspects are constantly being played off each other, right? The fact that he is trying to regain this relationship and those photographs and his experience in Biafra. And it's just, like, they never let it go right up until the end of the movie. So it's not like it's something you can kind of put to the back of your mind. I do agree with the white savior aspect to it. I do think the movie is trying to present it as no one else was documenting this. And those photos, like, he was getting them out to the world and kind of letting them know this was happening. And it, I think it's it's... The suggestion in the movie is that the motivations weren't as self-aggrandizing as they seem to be in the movie proper. Uh, So, I mean, at at least when it comes to that work, there's sort of a defense of it. But the way that that work is then uh, compared and and contrasted with what's going on in the movie, I guess can't imagine defending that in any particular way. That said, Liam, I do think I was able to wring more enjoyment out of this movie than you were. I, as part of it is the filmmaking on display. This movie is in black and white. Uh, it, it uses a lot of montage, a lot of kind of unique editing styles. It's one of the things you talked about in the opening segment about improvisational dialogue, how much it kind of requires uh, keen editing to make work. I don't know if the editing in this is keen enough to make a lot of that work. Some of the uh, conversations seem particularly rambling and meandering, but I do also think that at certain points it reaches a rawness and realness in the dialogue in that these self-important people would have these rambling, ridiculous conversations. There is this character, a comedian, that is a friend of uh, of our lead in the movie, and he is kind of – he's come up with this concept of jokes without punchlines, and you know as soon as he's trying to – show them what his act is going to be, that it's not going to work. And when we finally see the act, it absolutely doesn't work, and he's kind of embarrassed by it. But I like that that at least there's an interesting 
counterpoint to the kind of art that he's doing and the kind of art that this comedian is doing and the way that they're they've leaned their lives so heavily into it that it seems to be the only way that they could communicate complicated ideas is through their art but we'll talk about a scene that really focuses on that on in a second i want to ask you liam we talked about the fact that all the dialogue in this movie is improvised how did that strike you terrible terrible I mean, there are moments where people say things that don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there are moments where people get upset and the other people, I guess, it, you know, it allows for some very believable acting because there are times when our lead slash director, writer, guy, mm-hmm. uh, there are times where he uh, he has outbursts that everyone is generally actually surprised by because... Uh, doesn't make sense. Don't know why he's doing that. And no one else seems to know either. Uh, there's a lot of talking over each other so that you can't really hear what anyone's saying. Um, yeah, it just isn't. And there's choices um, uh, <clears throat> like the like the fruit scene. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a moment. <laughs> that you just think, why are we doing this right now? It, it just, it... Um, I don't know if it's if it's a choice like, OK, what this improvised dialogue gives us is a little bit of a mystification um, that we don't have a movie where people are explaining themselves very well. Uh, and in fact, the only the only character who seems to bring any clarity to what anyone's feeling is his friend Mitch, who very much yeah. is like, this is like when I was going through this, you're going through the same thing. You have to get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So Mitch has some clarity. Uh, a lot of times when other people are talking. I, it it starts to feel like maybe this is some sort of like uh, abstract avant-garde satire because mm. it just doesn't make sense what everyone is saying. And I found myself feeling like I, you know, I hadn't read when I was watching it beforehand that this was improvised, but I was watching it going, come on, there's no way this was a script, right? Like they, this had to be a scene where they were just kind of figuring it out as they went along. And when, when I read like, oh, okay, it's improvised. Like, of course it was a, a fucking course it was. And I just don't think, <laughs> I just don't think the actors in this have the skills necessary to sell these scenes. I do. Mitch is such an interesting character to me because you're right. He does seem to have a little bit more heft to trying to to move the plot along. But there's a part where he goes to visit our lead character who's like really down in the dumps and he started to really kind of lose it and put all of his pictures of uh, this woman that he's in love with on the wall. And he's like, you know what? Get a shower. I'm going to get you out of here and get you drunk, that sort of thing. You know, the thing like a good friend might do in that circumstance. But then he takes him to a bar where he gets to sit and listen to all these businessmen talk. It's so it's such a strange moment, the idea that anyone would think that this is going to cheer him up. And now, these businessmen, I do like some of that dialogue. Some of them are talking about jealousy. Some of them are talking about business as a whole. One kind of nebbish guy tells a story about this relationship that that broke up over the idea of jealousy. I think some of that is actually pretty interesting. But it's also, it's like, what are these people doing? <laughs> Why would he sit them down with these old business guys to talk about jealousy? It That part, it, it felt like there was a convention going on. Yeah. And they decided just to sit on these guys who were at the convention, like, talking to each other. <laughs> it, was, it, was conf- it was very confusing. Like, very confusing. And 
I it was filmed in such a way that I thought, am I supposed to know who these motherfuckers are? Are these famous old white men and I just don't know <laughs> who they are? Like they're playwrights or they're comedians or some shit. It was very weird. The the way the whole thing was put together was very weird. And um I don't know why you would take your friend there when he's dealing with something. Like taking <laughs> them going to the strip club to see their buddy do terrible comedy. Um <laughs> was a lot more logical than yeah we're in what appears to be a hotel bar while these guys who are taking a break from their business convention say things that don't make any sense to each other like it's like this will cheer you up buddy <laughs> it just was so weird man i really was sitting there going do i need to look up who these people are like what's happening right now so let's talk about the fruit scene liam yeah so a lot of the movie, uh, say the first 45 minutes, involves Mitch telling Mel, our lead character, that he needs to talk to Carmen, this woman that he's obsessed with, that he's had this relationship with, the one that he has now decided that he wants to be exclusive to and wants her to be. Actually, I guess it's more accurate to say he wants her to be exclusive to him. I mean, who knows what else, what else he's thinking in regards to it. Now, Carmen is is not entirely moved on, but certainly... She's a dancer. Uh, the her dance partner is someone that she's obviously having a relationship with. Mel, knowing this, goes to confront the both of them at her apartment, and he is confused and angry and all mixed up in his feelings. And the way that he decides to express himself is that he starts picking up fruit from a fruit bowl, tucking some of it into his shirt. First pretending to commit suicide with a banana, and then this guy that she's seeing, who he continually tells to leave, and the guy quite rightfully thinks, well, you know, this dude is all screwed up, maybe even violent. There is a suggestion that he has a really bad temper. I'm not going anywhere. And so he fills his shirt with fruit, and then he grabs onto the guy. And, like, they don't fight. They just kind of wrestle with him, squashing the fruit in his shirt. And this moment of... Mel embarrassing himself impresses Carmen after this guy decides to actually leave, impresses her enough that they then make love in actually a very well shot sequence uh, on the floor. And then they have a dance routine as well, which maybe we'll talk about. What did this mean to you, Liam? Uh, To me, there is a kind of a a really, there's a suggestion that these are two people who express themselves through their art. So the only way that they can uh, get in touch with these really hard-to-deal-with-feelings is to make it an artistic statement. But his artistic statement involves all of this fruit. What did you think? It was... (laughs) Okay, the thing is, is that this movie to me is... uh, There are certain aspects that we haven't really hit on too hard that I think are worth mentioning, which is like, this is 1987, right? This man is clearly a fucking washed up hippie like i don't just mean the character the man in the movie (laughs) is a washed up fucking hippie and whatever age we're supposed to think his character is when we're watching it we're like so this is about an old washed up hippie trying to get with a younger dancer like that's that's uh, again i don't know that we're meant to read the movie that way but they haven't done any work to change the reality which is that this is a gross old man, and this is a younger woman. And that aspect added in here with his whole, the way the movie presents him 
as being this dude who did this one really meaningful thing and then hasn't gotten over it for 17 years is like makes it all to me very gross doug this is the whitiest old man white movie I've ever fucking watched in my life. It's about the impotence of being an old washed up hippie in the 80s, uh, about the way that, uh, uh, you know, he's in the midst of, um, to me at least, that these are people lurking on the edges of, of Reagan's America who, who have given up on any sort of meaningful existence. And so instead they've got their heads all the way up their asses and, and literally conflating his... Let's take it at face value that he did this amazing special thing 17 years ago where he was the one uh, not African dude who cared about this intense slaughter in Biafra, this horrible situation of starvation and death. He was the one guy. And then since then, he's ridden that meaningfulness for 17 years and it is now in his heart because that's really what we're being shown here is his emotional reality in yeah. his emotional reality the fact that this younger woman doesn't want to fuck just him is the same as dead kids those are the same for him and his world that is the most washed up white man thing these these are the people <laughs> who felt like the world was getting back to normal when they swept clinton in with his bullshit into office that's who this guy is. And everything about him is upsetting to me. And so <laughs> in that scene with the fruit, I think he really is thinking like, well, if I show her my vulnerable side and the passion of that, then she's going to see, you know, let alone the fact that him being like, I don't want to make this into some sort of stupid scene here because that young dude would beat the shit out of you, man. Like, yeah. Don't pretend <laughs> like you're saving him. The way he keeps presenting it is like, I don't want to hurt you. So let's just not do that right now. And I'm like, come on, you would be dead. He would murder you. This is all bullshit. And so like the the fruit scene, as much as I wanted to focus on how ridiculous it is, he's got this smushed fruit in his shirt. <laughs> A, the, the way he plays it off is still like he's this kind of tough, kind of intimidating guy, which he's fucking not. And... He then uses it as a way to be kind of emotionally manipulative. I mean, you said like, oh, he absolutely does. She, she's I so do. impressed that they have sex. That's not true. He pushes her until she gets so mad at him that she hits him, and it's that violence that yes, unleashes their passion to then have this well shot but kind of gross scene. And though, though I, I mean, after the sex, I do think that the movie is being very critical of him because his response right. afterwards is like that other guy will will never fuck you like I fucked you. And then he tries to turn that into the to make a decision right now. And to her credit, she's like, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to make a decision. I need time to think about this because she obviously has made her decision. It's not going to be him. Uh, I should mention that that Rob Nilsson himself must think a lot of that fruiticide scene, that the scene with the fruit, because one of the few clips of this movie on YouTube come from his own YouTube channel, which has a excerpt from that scene. It's, it, the thing is, is that as much as uh, the movie, the movie, the movie is meant, the movie is meant to attack the character's hubris, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's actually supposed to be a vulnerable, like, uh, meditation on a certain kind of impotence. Right, I think that yeah. that's partly what's going on here, and yet it still managed to be such a fucking jerk off uh, uh, exercise that it it accomplishes the. It's like writing a poem about how shitty you are. That's really about how it's a shame people don't appreciate how awesome you are. That's how it 
plays to me, Doug. And it like really, I, I, I hate to be that guy on the show that I can't just like focus on the positive things or laugh at the goofiness of it because there's a lot of goofy stuff here. I'm just so annoyed by the movie <laughs> that like it's hard for me to get at the other things. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's funny that he's like just dick out for a bunch of this stuff like you know he he uh, very much is like that's part of the scene and i, I like that 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 he thinks that that's kind of sexy like there's a feeling that he's still kind of sexy in the movie and i kind of appreciate that even though i don't agree i like that <laughs> that he puts himself out there like that that that's part of the movie i kind of like that um and i kind of uh feel like the ending is so over the top uh in 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 its use of the montage of the various pictures that uh that it almost is fitting it's almost a perfect ending because it's so terrible but it's just hard for me to see all that past my own frustration it does kind of feel like the style of this movie is a much rawer and uh maybe more self-indulgent version of of the 1990s independent movies that you might see like slacker or clerks or something like that and i don't just say that because that's in black and white as well but just the you know that this is a movie that relies on very lengthy takes of people just talking and it it in this case it doesn't just feel improvised but actually is improvised but it is hard to then go back after all of the movies that we've seen uh, for the decades after this movie came out, go back to this starting point where, like, this was obviously very influential for people at the time. It, it obviously had a lot of eyes in front of it. It's hard not to watch this from the perspective of, uh, to use something that you, a, a phrase that you like to use, Liam, uh, of it being a bunch of white nonsense. It's, again, I wouldn't, I know people probably get sick of me saying that. I wouldn't put it in that in that way just because it was about a pathetic, jealous old man who used to be cool. That isn't enough for it. It's the it's the instrumentalizing of African suffering that right. makes me say not only is this pathetic, it's pathetic white nonsense. That <laughs> that makes it that you know what I mean. And again. It's 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 that much more frustrating because it's meant to be about being pathetic. It's supposed yes. to be self-revelatory, and it's so not that that it's upsetting. It's it just rubs me the wrong way in its fake vulnerability. Well, Liam, all of that discussion leads to <laughs> the concept behind this podcast. Liam is heat and sunlight from the year nineteen eighty-seven, a forgotten gem. So I will say, actually, if you're someone who's interested in um, that brief moment of uh, artistic black and white VHS, because this is like there is a look to this movie. Now, for me, uh, I made a couple audio tape jokes. This really looks to me like the movies I made on my Panasonic audio tape <laughs> video thing that I eventually gave to my stepbrother so he can make art movies with. Um, it looks like that to me. I don't find it impressive, whatever. But. You know, I'm being unfair. The reality is, it is a little bit groundbreaking. There's a lot of cool stuff going on here that we don't associate with uh, shot on video movies of this time period, at least. You know, uh, and so I think if you're someone who is interested in shot on VHS independent films or shot on whatever video this is, uh, I think there's there is artistic stuff going on here. But you're gonna appreciate it in my mind. Only for its technical achievements. I just don't think there's enough here outside of the uh, technical stuff going on to make this vi this movie worthwhile. I think this movie is a very key element 
an aspect of independent filmmaking of 1987. But I think if you really want a perspective on it, you look at those independent spirit awards from 1989, where you have it up against Mystery Train and Drugstore Cowboy, and in particular Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And already, by 1989, you look at that list and be like, what is this movie doing here? It just shows that things change so much between 1987 and 1989, and how much they would change in the 1990s. I think it's a key part of that evolution, but when something is halfway evolved, it, it's always going to look a little strange in retrospect. If you are a listener and want to check out uh, Heat and Sunlight yourself, it's a little difficult to do. <laughs> it's not very uh, commonly available, but it is available currently on the streaming service Fandor, F-A-N-D-O-R. That's how both Liam and I watched it. And you should check it out and let us know what you think. Uh, again, I know a lot of people have strong opinions about this movie uh, one way or the other. I say a lot of people. I mean, the few people who have seen it in the last, say, 20 years have some opinions about it. Why don't you let us know what you think about Heat and Sunlight? You can, I, uh, Yes, please. I do want that to be a direct endorsement of Fandor. I think Fandor is pretty great. Um, th- when Fandor first started, the choices in uh, independent artistic cinema streaming were actually very slim. And now... Right. Between Criterion and uh, Movie, Movie and uh, Ovid, there, there's. It feels like there's a, a, a plethora of those choices. But Fandor was in there first, and Fandor, from very early on, really had a diverse sort of lineup. So yeah, Fandor was how I watched uh, the Watermelon Woman. You know that that yeah. that was great. Fandor was also how I watched Street Trash. You know what I mean. So like <laughs> knowing that you could go to Fandor and just find this broad acceptance of um, a variety of films that were not available other places, what is cool was cool at the time and is still cool now. So um, not that I'm against these other services, and you know uh, if you have the means to have multiple services, uh, you know I think that's great, but. I, I've always thought it would be cool to just alternate, right? Like do a year of Ovid and then switch to a year of Fandor and then try something else, you know? Like I think there's just cool variety out there. uh, And a lot of those collections you would think would have a lot of overlap and they really don't. I mean, I think that's very fair. Uh, And uh, particularly when it comes to independent film like this, which might not have a wide distribution. I mean, like I said, this movie, Heat and Sunlight, it's not easy to find on DVD. It's it's it, it's not like you can go to a video store and just pick it up. It it's really reliant on a streaming service like Fandor to get it out there into the world. And yeah, it's very worthwhile. You can even get it through uh, Amazon in the U.S. at least. So check it out, Liam. What are we going to check out and watch next time on the Forgotten Gems podcast? So uh, next time we'll be talking about a film that uh, is directed by. Uh, Fata Akin, I think I'm saying that right, uh, from 2004 called Head On. That uh, was the is that the winner of the Crystal Bear at the Berlin Film yeah, Festival? Yeah, I believe so at the Berlin Film Festival. Yeah, uh, and, and won a number of other awards as well. Uh, so we're going to check that out. It's a movie that uh, is directed by someone I've, I've heard of, but I have not heard many people talk about this movie. And I thought, well, since this has won an award, let's let's do it. Let's dive in and see what, <laughs> what we think. I want to kind of reiterate that on uh, on Forgotten Gems, we're not talking about movies that have been entirely forgotten necessarily. And you might hear sure. some of the titles that we've covered and being like, what are you talking about? It's just movies that at one point, and I certainly remember in 2004, this movie being discussed and talked about at length, that movies that if they 
they might not necessarily have fallen out of favor, but simply are not as discussed as some other efforts from that time period that maybe made that big of a splash. So uh, I'm very curious. I've not seen Head On before, so very much looking forward to that on the next episode of Forgotten Gems. I think in some ways it's really an effort, uh, at least when I'm thinking about it, to treat um, other genres the way that we treat horror Absolutely. on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Because every time a horror movie comes out on Blu-ray that isn't generally talked about, we all flip out because it's like, whoa, here's something we didn't remember anymore. We didn't know about her. We only kind of remember her. it. It's like every little thing we can find that hasn't been sort of looked over a million times has like value to it. And and, I, and I'm not criticizing any of that, but we don't talk about other genres of film in the same way a lot of times. And so I, you know, as a, as a big lover of uh, the sorts of films that do well at film festivals, but don't always make it into the mainstream culture. I thought this would be a way for us to bring a bit of that feeling of discovery back to those kinds of movies. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword for us as podcasters, because these are movies that because they have been left behind a little bit that, you know, the, the title itself might not get people excited to hear us talk about them, but it, it, and in some ways it's somewhat self-indulgent for us, right? We're looking to discover these movies that we may have heard of or maybe have heard of tangentially and seeing if they are worthy of us rediscovering, but it's just an opportunity to talk about subject matter that generally we just wouldn't talk about elsewhere. Well, I think we, we will start doing a better job of like hyping up when we're going to do that. You know, like if we start promoting now to people, hey, we're going to be doing this. Maybe that's a, an opportunity for people to see if they can find it and watch it and, you know, be a part of that discovery with us. Be a part of the discovery. <laughs> it's a great, great slogan. Liam, you're, you should be in advertising. Oh. Be part of the discovery on the Forgotten Gems podcast. Liam, if people want to check out more Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can go to cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, and check out uh, our latest episodes, as well as a number of other podcasts, from uh, The Evil Eye to Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe, and uh, Help for the Helpers, and and a whole family of podcasts over there, as well as uh, some great writing. We just wrapped up our Cineween event uh, a couple weeks ago, but there's still some great essays to check out over there, and hopefully Uh, we're going to start creating some video content as well. Uh, If they want to reach back into the back catalog, get back into some of the things we've covered over over the the years here. Okay, it hasn't been years, but you know what I mean. Uh, They can head to cinemasmorgasbord.com and they can also, you know, check us out on the social medias. You know, Cinepunks is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Cinema Smorg, uh, we have our uh, Twitter, which is at Cinema Smork, and a Facebook group uh, that you can search called Cinema Smorgasbord. Um, I guess they could follow you as well, Doug, on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. They can follow me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T I L L E Y. Yeah, and why don't you follow me? Follow Cinema Smorg, S M O R G, on Twitter. And of course, Liam Rules, R U L Z, uh, on there, Liam, because of all your uh, high quality postings. And I imagine at this point. <laughs> Now post election, it'll be a very celebratory attitude that you'll have, right? I'm not I'm not setting us up for disappointment by saying that. <laughs> I like how we've kind of avoided acknowledging that the world that is listening I mean, we've talked about it a teeny bit, but uh, you know, we do understand the world that we are hopefully gonna be projecting this podcast into might be very different than the world yeah. in which we are recording it. God 
God willing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the for better or worse, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, whatever is going on right now, listeners, I hope you can stay positive. I hope you can be looking for forgotten gems in your own life, Liam. But we need to go now. We got to go. We got stuff to do. Liam's got to go vote. <laughs> we need to get out of here. Uh, but we'll be back very soon with another forgotten gem. Good night, everybody. Night. Watch that stuff to the self-end.